Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons and I'm joined today by my colleagues Claire Fox and Adam Rawcliffe. Well, it's just over three weeks until the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. Our satellite events have already begun with debates in Poland and Birmingham, with plenty more over the next two months either side of the main event in London. Right now we're working flat out, finalising the programme, inviting the last few speakers. We have well over 400 people speaking this year, preparing the festival brochure and updating the website. But we thought we'd take an opportunity to pause, take a look at the debates coming up and pick out a few personal highlights from the 100 plus sessions taking place at the Barbican. So, Claire, what's caught your eye even more than everything else? Well, I'm, I am actually really looking forward to chairing the opening keynote, um, which is a debate on populism. And I think we'll set up some of the key themes in relation to the festival in terms of a term like populism that we know is usually used as an insult, but which a couple of the speakers at least, Frank Friday and David Goodhart, are looking at a little bit more um, through the eyes of, well, what makes populism popular? and some of the reactions against establishment values and so on. But with a really nice uh, a, a kind of counter to that from Elif Shafak, who's one of my favourite international novelists, who I'm delighted is speaking, who, with her Turkish background, is obviously both very sensitive to the darker side of um, populism, as witnessed in contemporary um, Turkey at the moment, but also as a... As a uh, somebody involved in human rights and social justice issues, worries about the kind of Trumpite populism and the effect that will have on people. But I just feel as though the debate is not going to just um, follow the usual tram lines. And, it, it, you know, it's we've got 90 minutes to really um, get that discussion going, hear from the speakers, but really get the audience involved in the conversation. And I feel as though a lot of the things that will be said at that will uh, run throughout the festival as themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those uh, discussions where the the impulse of populism or why populism has become important is uh, is is positive in the kind of political shakeup. But some of the forms in which it's taking obviously do, do make people who believe in freedom and you know sort of have a generally liberal outlook in terms of uh, you know people being allowed to do what they want to do does make you rather nervous about some of these things. So it's that how we find that balance between giving giving the, uh, the, the, the this impulse towards uh, a political shake-up, the thumbs up and, and, and the, some of the sort of negative consequences. That will be, I think, quite an interesting one that will come out in that. Yeah, I think it's interesting in uh, kind of examining a concept which is quite misunderstood or used in a variety of different ways. Uh, I think as well in the terms of political realignment, which is a bit of another theme of the festival, which we also have a debate on, I think it's an interesting way of examining that sort of new political realignment, uh, politics opening up for more people, but also uh, using terms uh, like populism, like fascism in derogatory ways to sort of cut down a lot of that opening up. Uh, So I think it would be really interesting sort of uh, set the stall out sort of state of contemporary politics to open up the festival uh, and I think it'll sort of give you if you go to it give you the right headspace to sort of analyse a lot of the other debates moving on mm-hmm. uh, So Adam what have you picked out? Uh, so one I'm really excited about is uh, From Pepe the Frog to Charlottesville The Rise of the Alt-Right that's on Saturday uh, 4 till 5.15 in the Conservatory 
Uh, it's part of the Understanding America uh, strand, but I think it's a bit broader than just America. So obviously the alt-right really uh, shot to international headlines after the you know, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and the uh, violence which broke out there. Uh, I think it's an interesting topic because a lot is brandished under the label alt-right, uh, but we don't. it's quite hard to define actually what the alt-right is. Is it just people on 4chan, on Tumblr, uh, online, uh, raging from everything, from people who have quite controversial right-wing views, uh, who are often racist or, often, or sometimes just uh, quite fickle, quite uh, narcissistic and nihilistic online trolls? Uh, so I really want to get to the bottom of the phenomenon. I personally don't think the alt-right is a particular threat. I think it's a phenomenon which has been given way more media attention than it perhaps deserves. Uh, but I also think this panel is just fantastic. Uh, pretty much anyone or uh, who's anyone uh, speaking about this topic uh, from a UK context. We've also got Kathy Young coming over uh, from America, who's a journalist and commentator, uh, usually... Uh, pretty on point with these sort of things. Angela Nagel, who's written the great new book, Kill All Normies, from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the alt-right. And Jamie Bartlett as well, uh, who presented BBC's The Secrets of Silicon Valley. Uh, And then Sabrina Harris, who's a technical author, commentator uh, on sort of internet subcultures. So I think we have a really broad swathe of people uh, who can get to the bottom of the alt-right and really if they're a threat or not. I think as well, it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the listeners might be interested that um, Kathy Young, who I'm a great fan of, I mean, she's one of the great free speech heroines of our time. Um, but she herself, in an American context, a lot of the people that she was associated with, for example, would now be in the alt-right camp. And quite early mm. on, Kathy Young started to say there's something wrong with the people who are kind of calling themselves free speech warriors but really are alt-right. So she kind of raised some concerns about some quite nasty uh, anti-Semitism, for example, and reactionary views that were kind of being put forward as a kind of mocking, um, kind of ironic uh, internet yeah. subculture. So I think the fact that she's speaking, will it, she'll give us a real sort of insight into the way that it's been a moving target in many ways. And people like Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, um, who's somebody who, who, who's spoken at the Battle of Ideas before, but is now kind of exposed as being just a kind of self-publicist and also somebody with some quite uh, nasty views lurking and all the rest of it. Now, of course, I support their free speech, but... And there is a but. Uh, so just exploring that. And I think Sabrina is really interesting because she was and is part of the kind of online gaming community, yeah. somebody who's, you know, kind of knows a lot of the Gamergate people, kind of has followed this, knows a lot of the characters involved, who on the one hand can, I hope, throw some light on how, you know, a lot of people who are branded alt-right are just people who are interested in, like, subcultures and, you know, are, are demonised and dismissed because they're called alt-right. But on the other hand, has also seen some of the dark side. So it'll just yeah. be interesting to hear all their views. I think from the perspective of someone who argues for free speech and is interested in free speech, uh, I think it's really interesting because the alt-right are some of the most uh, bombastic, outspoken advocates of free speech. But I think they advocate it in a way as being a bit of a silver bullet. They don't really do the necessary hard work. 
and the hard intellectual work behind free speech. They use it as a way of shutting down people who uh, call them misogynist, racist, etc., and use it very thickly. So I think it's an interesting debate for people who are concerned in free speech and sort of ironing out what that actually means. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's one of those debates where it's very easy to have missed it, and I'm still bemused by Pepe the Frog <laughs> and the 4chan and the whole uh, sort of culture of it all. So uh, that's that's certainly one that hopefully will explain it all to me. Um, for my part, the first thing I want to pull up is a debate which is called "Is Globalization Over the Future of World Trade?" I think it's. Uh, I mean, it does. It does uh, go back to the populism discussion that we were talking about earlier because uh, one of the things that uh, this this sort of populist movement is really reacting against is globalization and um, over the last 30 years or so um, it's been widely commented that um, that you know, globalization the expansion of uh, uh, free trade has actually uh, lifted people's living standards incredibly globally you know, as, you know especially in uh, China and India um, the, the ability to trade around the world has, has you know eliminated extreme pro- poverty and is lifting many more people into what could be regarded as Western standards of, of living you know, in an incredibly short time but there has been this real backlash not, obviously most notably with Trump talking about bringing American jobs home but also that the fallout from uh, Brexit does that mean that um, that tr- trade with Europe's going to uh, go into decline, and uh, you know the, the 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 idea that you know from the left as well that globalization has been something that's uh, been to benefit big businesses, you know, and uh, cut the cost of labour by exporting jobs rather than being for the for the benefit of um, ordinary people in uh, the, the countries around the world. Um, so I think that the, 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 the fact that that's something that was seen as just inevitable uh, only very recently is now being called into question, I think is very, very interesting. And it's a good panel as well with diverse views. Um, we've got Dr. Jared Lyons, who's no relation to me, um, mm-hmm. who's, who's very keen advocate of, of um, completely cutting our ties, as it were, with, um, with, with Europe. He's the author of Clean Brexit. Who couldn't be more diametrically opposed to Vicky Price, who is a very, uh, um, very pro EU, very pro trade and, and, and close ties with Europe. Got Professor James Woodhausen, who has been identifying uh, protectionist trends even before Trump and Brexit, um, in terms of the fact that world trade talks have been stalling and uh, a sense that Europe is like kind of battening down the hatches. And we've also got uh, Alan Simpson from Labour in the City. So it's quite a, a, a good, uh, diverse panel. And I think it's a, it's a very important subject, uh, not just in the realm of economics, but for the whole future of society. I think it's one of those debates, not dissimilar to the ones we've just talked about, where it's, there's absolutely no black and white. So, you know, the reactions of people to globalisation can often be entirely worthy and sensible. And, um, you know, they're victims of it and they can kind of feel that globalisation is used as an excuse to treat them with um, indifference and contempt. We know that it has been a way of assaulting national sovereignty and so on. But there is this kind of difficulty, which is is that, you know, for modern the modern world to function, how do you deal with a situation if trade is not able to trade freely? And how those kind of things clash. 
And one of the things that's fascinating for me is that globalisation has become like a value issue. It's one of the things that David Goodhart discusses, and he no doubt will bring up, where he says the globalisers are kind of out against the localists and the people who understand tradition. They're the metropolitan elite, the kind of rootless metropolitans. And yet, having said that, um, free trade is something which obviously everybody potentially can gain from, but it also can be an excuse for the exploitation of millions of people, you know, um, under the guise of freedom. So why I like this panel is it won't just be about Brexit, but some of the key themes around Brexit will emerge and some of the big, it's not as simple as I thought it was, points I'm sure will come out from the panel because, as you say, it's a great panel. In some ways, it's similar territory, but in a very different way uh, being discussed as well, called Where Will We Get the Workers? the battle over skills and immigration, because obviously if there isn't free movement of labour, as there has been uh, particularly over the last um, 12 years or so, um, then where are the NHS going to get the workers from? Where are we going to... Are the crops going to rot in the fields and so on? So that's the other side of Brexit that um, we need to talk about is, you know, are we going to maintain free movement? Are we going to have a a renewed uh, effort to train people up uh, that's 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 something that um, I'm certainly looking forward to as well. Claire, what, what have you got next on your agenda? So we've got a um, fabulous discussion, I think, on diversity, does it matter? And this is a, a, an issue that's very close to my heart because anyone who's ever been involved in the fight, for example, for women being treated equally or so on, you know, kind of rages against people thinking that little women aren't up to the job or... Um, the way that uh, people have been discriminated over the years. That's been very much a driving force of a fight for you know anybody interested in liberation and, and humanism. But we've now got to a point where the demand for diversity in the workforce is enough to make me kind of um, uh, reach for my metaphorical gun because I know it's very often got a condescending air to it. It's um, particularly come to the fore in relation to the issues around the so-called... Um, Google memo and the idea that uh, Google um, distorted their uh, employee relations in terms of achieving diversity quotas. There's all sorts of nasty aspects of the diversity industry, such as unconscious bias training, which therefore diversity is being used to police the workforce and their opinions and their informal relations with each other, to eye each other up suspiciously, to view one's own motives as 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 um, uh, dangerous and destructive. If you don't happen to like someone and they happen to be a lesbian, then you're inevitably going to be told in your unconscious bias training that you're somehow homophobic. All of these things are really unpleasant. But the, that's actually just the kind of superficial aspect of the of the of the discussion. Because what I really want to dig deeper into is how diversity as an end has become kind of a value that trumps almost everything else. And so you will get, you know, the EU has, um, you know, diversity is one of its core missions. And it actually uses that to um, kind of stamp all over the notions of national sovereignty, for example. Anybody who proclaims that they support national sovereignty, they're told that you're anti the diversity agenda. Um, It's used constantly as in education to bring in all sorts of things which I think have been very negative in terms of a meritocratic approach to, for example, universities. So there's all sorts of things that I want to kind of look at there. One of the things that, of course, is the irony of all this is that for all everyone's 
um, uh, attached to diversity, they're never attached to diversity of opinion. And obviously that goes against the grain of the whole Battle of Ideas Festival. But also with a certain irony, I've got a panel of four women and I'm chairing. So uh, we're not that diverse, but we'll have diverse views. So we've got um, Josie Appleton uh, from the Manifesto Club who never has spoken and not made me think. So I'm delighted about that. But Amali de Alwis, uh, CEO of Code First Girls, who's much more enthusiastic about diversity um, as it's presently uh, been put forward, very uh, uh, um, able to argue her case, I think. Kathy Young again, but, you know, bringing the American perspective, because in, in, in America, that where the Google issue occurred, um, Kathy, I think, will particularly be interested in talking about what's happening on campus. And then very excited to have Dreda Say Mitchell, the uh, novelist uh, who has um, a, a crime writer, uh, fantastically insightful, who's very cynical about some of the BAME initiatives around diversity, but on the other hand, absolutely believes that diversity should be pursued for uh, uh, people from ethnic minorities, very worried about people being left beh- behind, but thinks that sometimes it's just a kind of institutionalised box-ticking exercise. So what's not to like about that? I mean, I think that it should be cracking session. Yeah, it's really, really interesting one. I think the approach to look at diversity as a value uh, and analyse it in that sort of way rather than just uh, the sort of logistical of is it right for more BME or more women to be at higher levels, these are the stats. Uh, I think that's quite a played out and a bit boring discussion now. Uh, but actually looking at diversity as a value which really came up with the Google Memo uh, case, uh, I think that's a really interesting way to do it. I'm uh, quite interested in the intersection of how diversity as a value clashes with uh, things like social mobility and class uh, and also the concept of meritocracy does diversity just because you're a BME face or a minority face or you're a woman or trans uh, does that does that trump the meritocratic, meritocratic aspect of earning your position uh, I think that's quite hard for people who really push for diversity to consolidate uh, also the perennial question of does the quest for diversity mean that white middle-class men should lose their jobs? Uh, is this a long-term goal or is it something which needs to happen now and then what are the consequences? Mm-hmm. Adam, what's your next pick? Uh, so I'm going to highlight a strand. Uh, so the Law and Order strand, which is taking place on Sunday. Uh, I'm really excited about this strand. The Battle of Ideas has a bit of a reputation for doing... Uh, legal debates before uh, but I think we're doing something a little bit different this year, I think we're looking more broadly kind of at the whole criminal justice system uh, both what can, constitutes a crime, uh, what happens if you're found guilty of a crime you didn't commit uh, and then what happens when you're in, when you're convicted and when you're in prison uh, I think that uh, crime and punishment uh, less so than law uh, is uh, often not really proper seriously debated in the mainstream media. Uh, I think it's quite easy for politicians to win points by saying they'll be tough on crime and that they'll uh, drive up convictions. It's quite easy for tabloid newspapers to attract viewers by just condemning criminals or uh, basically being uh, kind of leaning to the right and being really hard on crime. Uh, I think the Battle of Ideas this year is a really great space to try and have a bit of an ideas-driven discussion about the criminal justice system. One, if it's working. Uh, two, uh, how do we uh, 
right over miscarriages of justice? Uh, do we need to uh, things which are new crimes? Should we be introducing new crimes uh, and especially new crimes which are driven by particularly politically popular uh, issues, things like sex offences, etc. And then I think we're kicking off with really interesting discussion, uh, kind of on how legal power uh, is justified, where legal power resides. Does it reside with uh, parliaments? Does it reside in uh, the courts? Uh, So yeah, I think uh, we're kind of touching on a little bit every aspect of the criminal justice system uh, and doing it in a unique way which I think is quite necessary and hopefully will spark a lot of discussion and in, in outside of the battle of ideas and maybe lead some people reassessing how they want to enact change. Uh, particularly I'm excited about my session uh, which I'll be chairing uh, on Sunday 2 till 3.30 uh, which is after the riots is prison reform still possible uh, Debating Matters, one of the Institute of Ideas projects, uh, has just finished up working for the second year in HMP Birmingham, where one of those said riots happened, uh, doing some debating with uh, prisoners. Uh, it's been a massive success. We think this is the sort of aspirational project which should be taking place in prison as part of prison reform, uh, not some uh, more menial, uh, what the prisoners actually said to us, not challenging enough educational projects. Uh, So I want to hold some of the key thought leaders, some of the key reformers, uh, and then some of the people who actually run private prisons in the UK uh, to account and actually get them to justify what they're doing and how they want to enact reform based on an ideas-driven programme and not just uh, technocratic uh, or nicey-nicey, bleeding-heart liberal uh, sort of uh, ideas. So yeah, really, really excited about the strand. I think we're doing something a little bit different this year, uh, and I think it's uh, a good thing to be doing. Uh, just very quickly, in addition to that, I mean, I, th- I think it's great that we've actually got G4S involved in this because they've been the people who've we've who run HMP um, Birmingham Prison, and we've got the the the, the main guy Jerry Heatherwick who's got um Pether- Heatherwick Heatherwick. Um, who, who's actually on the panel and I think that will be really interesting because sometimes people very easily want to say the problem in prisons is they're privatised but it seems to me it's more complicated than that at least but on the other hand there's maybe a question to answer there but actually we had a fantastic debate on prison reform at the question time that we held in HMP Birmingham and I think what would be really interesting for you Adam is to bring some of the thoughts of the yeah. prisoners to that discussion and there were surprisingly diverse views. They didn't all agree with each other. They all agreed that the smoking ban was ridiculous, as did all of the panel, uh, the question time panel. But apart from that, there were very different views. And, and it wasn't kind of like just a kind of, we want nicer prisons. And, they, uh, um, and, and certainly in terms of things like um, um, miscarriages of justice, there were actually very few people who were trying to say, I didn't do it. Um, they were talking about how they could take responsibility. Just, just additionally, to just stress that one of the sessions in that strand is on uh, is Lenora Scanazzi, who's a great speaker from America, America's worst mum, as she's dubbed, um, uh, um, because she believes in allowing parents to have the freedom to rear their children and let their children walk to school, for example. But anyway, she's a fantastic character, but she's done a lot of really interesting work. She's doing a session on what constitutes a sex crime because in America now the broadened definition of what gets you on the sex um, uh, offenders register is actually means that you know young people at the age of 10 
um, who kind of played chase uh, with the with uh, girls or uh, people who um, have been found guilty of sexting as uh, though disseminating pornography or on the criminal uh, sex uh, offences register in America forever and then that's made available to local communities and immediately gets you dubbed a paedophile and so on so she's going to kind of run that with Luke Gittos who's going to look at the UK angle I think that'll be both a fun session and a kind of scary reminder of you know you might end up in prison when you never thought you would um my uh, next pick is something quite quite different to all of that but it is a bit more brexity themed which is um called can sustainability and environmentalism survive brexit britain i think uh, this re- always reminds me of a conversation i had a few years ago at the battle of ideas with a quite well-known environmentalist who said to me over a glass of wine you know i don't know why people keep banging on about this the, uh, in the environment movements about you know challenging the status quo we are the status quo now we've won sustainable development is everywhere in government and i think that's still probably true but that um security that the sense that the, yeah, that's unquestionable now has actually been undermined particularly by brexit because now because so many of the uh, the environmental regulations that we have in this country have actually come from brussels rather than from um westminster then yeah, there's there is a lot of doubt about whether that's going to continue and whether environmental regulation is going to be weakened in some way i, I personally i don't see great, very much sign of that but the fact that some of the leading lights in the uh, Leave campaign are also quite critical of things like the the, the scares around climate change um, does uh, put the whole thing into question. And the fact that Donald Trump has walked away from the Paris Climate Change Agreement as well suggests that, that, you know, that there has been a turn away from uh, environmental considerations in government. And you know, it has to be said that these are not the biggest concerns for most people. I suspect a lot of people who voted Leave have very little interest in the environment in general, um, are much more concerned about having a decent job, getting a house, being able to get treated in a hospital, and that these concerns are those of people who are much better off, and they have been called into question now. So that's a very interesting uh, thing, both in terms of Brexit, but also in terms of the, the general uh, direction of politics today. And it's a good panel because it's not the usual suspects. Mm. We've got um, pe- people who are clearly very pro-environment pro, uh, envir- and pro-more regulation and some uh, sort of outspoken critics and perhaps some people in between who would think that the environment is an important issue but think it's better to dealt with through uh, better technology rather than through rules and regulations. Um, so that I think that should be a, a lively uh, panel, especially as I'm chairing it, and I'm going to make sure that it is. Um, so uh, please do come along to that. Yeah, I think I think this is a great topic because it's very interesting to me that with the rise of uh, populism that we've discussed, with the political realignment that Adam talked about as a major theme, you'd think that um, uh, you know parties like the Greens internationally might do well. But they just have collapsed. I mean, their vote is just kind of all st- st- stagnated. I think it's true that partly that's because they've become institutionalised or environmentalism become institutionalised. It doesn't take the expression of support for those parties. But I think it does indicate that it's institutionalised as a top-down value rather than that it ever was a kind of felt, meaningful um, um, aspect of 
everybody's lives and the way they think about the world. It's also um, ironic that um, Mr. Brexit, Mr. Michael Gove, has gone into um, DEFRA and proclaimed a green Brexit. Everyone was actually worried that Oh, Michael Gove, you know, he's going to be like a climate denier and all sorts of things were said, you know, he's going to be anti-green. Actually, he's irritatingly like the Green Party at the moment, you know, he's kind of doing recycling here and all, all the rest of it. So actually you think, well, I don't know what anyone's worried about. But having said that, I think what will be interesting, Rob, for you to kind of pull apart as well is, you know, when people say without these EU regulations, the environment's now going to be destroyed, you know, water's going to be contaminated, um, you know, and, and in fact, Thames Water, one of the sponsors, you know, all of these terrible things are going to happen. But there's an awful lot of environmental regulations that are actually a real um, holdback when it comes to, for example, uh, building new houses or the development of something like GM crops where Britain, um, you know, the EU are opposed to GM technology and all of these kind of things. So I think that actually tearing up some of the green regulations won't be a bad thing, even though people will see it as a regressive step. So I can imagine that's going to be a cracking round myself. Yeah, I think it's interesting to try and uh, challenge what I would see as the arrogance of the green lobby. Uh, uh, and kind of, I think it's another important political point which kind of put, passes through the festival that uh, you can't just ever accept and think that you've won the argument and don't have to keep remaking the argument and keep winning the argument. Uh, and I think uh, that holds true a lot in terms of the neoliberal elite's attitude to the whole populism debate in that they thought they'd won the argument and now that it's reopening because people can be bothered to go out to the people and try and win the argument, that... Uh, they are now just uh, shouting down everyone who opposes them. So I think that's a really interesting aspect. Um, I think it could be quite a lively, if-heated debate. Okay. So we've just got time for one more quick uh, highlight from each of you. So uh, short and sweet, Claire. Well, we're back doing cultural appropriation this year, which might um, appear to be an obsession, because I think it's probably the third year we've looked at this issue Interestingly enough, um, people have sort of said, oh, it's just a fad, it'll go away. Uh, disputes around cultural appropriation are a bit trivial. Um, you know, they're kind of over whether you should eat, uh, serve Chinese food or whether that's cultural appropriation or whether you should rename yoga mindful stretching because you're culturally appropriating um, uh, um, and, and behaving as an imperialist of Indian culture and so on. All of these kind of things that we all make fun of, the Mexican hat saga. But actually... If anything, I suppose a little, as we were saying about the Greens, I feel that, I fear that the sort of um, deeper assumptions around cultural appropriation have more and more become unchallengeable and that actually people now just assume that there is something about um, uh, Western culture that has stolen um, um, kind of the cultures of oppressed people historically and this is now... Uh, created a movement of people looking out for any signs at all of appropriation rather than it being humanity sharing and mingling and and so on and so forth so I've got a, 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 a panel together I think that really will reflect not we're not doing it as for and against we've just got kind of people who are really interesting on the topic uh, so inspired by our venue and partners uh, the Barbican's exhibition Basque at Boom For Real which is fantastic I hear um, but so which you should try and check out but hey you can't get tickets for love nor money uh, so good luck with that one 
So the session is called From Basquiat to Banksy, Street Art and Urbanism. It's one of those weird uh, scenarios where the battle of ideas didn't just seem to predict the future, but almost write the future. And that the Barbican's exhibition opened up uh, to a Banksy protest criticising uh, corporate art's attitude uh, to street art, uh, often a hypocritical attitude. I think this session's really interesting without going into too much de- detail because it tries to pick apart some of the inconsistencies and hypocrisies uh, in attitudes to what is often seen as guerrilla art or uh, outside of the mainstream, uh, whereas sometimes it is completely the mainstream, com- completely corporately funded, and just because it, mimic, uh, or it mimics or uses a style of graffiti, uh, it doesn't mean it necessarily is. So yeah, a lot of people I think you get a bit of rope in the art world just because they're edgy and cool getting held to account and criticised uh, and them trying to stress what, what about their art form uh, means that it's uh, rampant and wild. Uh, so we've got a great panel, not going to list them, uh, but a lot of different perspectives and a lot of interesting people who will come at this uh, from a variety of different ways. Uh, Banksy, if you're listening and want to actually contribute to this debate properly, come along and have your say from the audience. Uh, my final pick is uh, somewhat inspired by the fact that I'm the science and technology director of the Institute of Ideas, which means I read a lot about health stuff and I read a lot about tech stuff. And uh, so, the, so the the session I'm uh, interested in here is um, wearables, personalisation, or surveillance, um, which appeals to both my techie side and my hypochondriac side. And um, I just, I just think the rise of wearables is really interesting and on, on so many different levels. First of all, the technology itself, the fact that you know, the, the integration of smartphones uh, into with health apps and like, monitors and all the, the very positive uh, things that could come out of that um, in terms of healthcare in the future. But also, there's that kind of becoming a sort of monitoring, self-monitoring obsession, um, worrying about your health feeds into this a longer standing um, problem of the worried well. They're actually young, relatively well off people fretting about the fact that they're going to die young and they have to exercise a bit more or watch their diet on all this kind of thing who are actually in perfectly good health. So there's there's those tendencies there, but there's also the the, uh, questions around surveillance, what's happening with that data that we're, we're generating, what's happening in the workplace, how are employers using this to monitor their staff is this going to be a way of making sure that you're not looking at Facebook or you know you're being 100% productive 100% of the time and even things like insurance you know if you, if people are able to get cheaper insurance by uh, using wearables to monitor their health and giving the data to their insurance company what does that say about about privacy and about the whole nature of insurance as a, a way of socializing risk Lots of different things to talk about. I won't talk about who's on the panel, but I think it looks like a very good panel. Um, and I think it's just one of those kind of zeitgeisty kind of discussions to have um, right now. So that's, I hope, giving you a flavour of um, the broad range of discussions that we're having at the festival. But the, the London Festival takes place on the 28th and 29th of October at the Barbican. Uh, if you're north of the border, do check out Battle of Ideas Edinburgh, which happens the week before on Saturday the 21st of October at the National Library of Scotland. But you can find details about everything we're doing, all the sessions, speakers, 
uh, and other attractions on our website, battleofideas.org.uk, including special offer tickets for school pupils, students, and anyone under the age of 30 working in science, technology, engineering, or medicine. So please do check out the, the, the website, and if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts and subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. Thanks very much for listening.